But Ephesians chapter 5, we've been in this uh, text devoted to marriage, but also as it relates to Christ and the church. And so let's pick up where we left off. And so we'll be picking up with verse 30 and just reading verses 30 through 31, Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We can put one in your hand. It should be marked to the fifth chapter. Ephesians 5, starting with verse 30. For we, that's all of us in this room, are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray again. Father, we ask for your wisdom, your spirit. Lord, just fill this place, fill our minds with the things that come from you. And Lord, anoint your word. Use me, your servant, Lord. And a matter of fact, remove me from the equation that you might be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, I'm going to read a couple of uh, one-liners about marriage and see if these resonate. Or you've seen these in other people's lives, not, of course, your own. But um, here's one. Love is holding hands in the street. Marriage is holding arguments in the street. Ever, ever seen something like that? Other people, of course, not, not you. But uh, Marriage is when a man and a woman become as one. The trouble starts when they decide which one. Marriages are made in heaven. Then again, so are thunder, lightning, tornadoes, and hail. Marriage is a union, a union of heart, a union of soul, a union of mind, but wait till you have to pay the union dues, right? And there are some dues that you pay within marriage, isn't there? One way or another, marriage is effort. It takes hard work. Now, you wouldn't think that when you're in love just holding hands well before it and everything is bliss and everything looks like some Olivia Newton-John song in the 70s or something like that. Um, but then along comes the reality that marriage takes humility. It takes dying to ourselves. It takes some level of effort. It requires ultimately to really have a biblical marriage, it requires following the instructions of God. But aren't we glad God's actually given us instructions? We're not lacking instructions. We oftentimes lack the application of instruction, but we're not lacking instructions. So we've been able to uh, thankfully go through these words that the Lord has given us and follow them. My hope is that we all willingly, we talked about isn't willingly a much better way to go in life than pulled, pushed, and prodded, that we willingly and prayerfully and diligently apply what the Lord has been showing us in Ephesians chapter 5. That we apply these things. Say, Lord, I'm willing to do these things. Yeah, I'm being forced to do it. Wives willingly surrender and say, hey, you are the leader of this house. And, and men willingly say, I'm going to lay down my life for you and the, the whole family. So let's book, look back at our text as we want to pick up in verse 30 here, where Paul writes, for we are members of his body, and his flesh and his bones, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now a marriage that is built on the foundation of obedience and surrender to God will be both fulfilling and it will fulfill God's 
design and intent. Not just fulfilling, but it will fulfill God's plan, right? So we, you know, God doesn't want to have one or the other. Say, so, well, here's the deal. I'd like your marriage to either be fulfilling or fulfill my will. He wants both of those targets hit with the same arrow. And here again, Paul is portraying the highest image of marriage. What is that? Well, that's Christ in the church. That's the highest image of marriage. It's higher than any marriage that's ever been on earth. It's higher than Abraham and Sarah. Christ in the church is the highest image. And he's gone to great lengths to make this clear in, the, in Ephesians 5. Wouldn't you agree that Paul has made great uh, articulation about Christ and the church is the centerpiece of it all? And remember that Jesus said that in heaven, we will not be given in marriage or married in heaven. So our spouse today and people that have been, you know, like Elizabeth Elliot, you know, her husband was killed in the mission field, and she remarried, and then she had to remarry, her husband passes away. So uh, we're not given in marriage in heaven. Jesus made this clear, like husbands and wives are now, but that highlights what? The eternal fulfillment of marriage of Christ and the church, because Christ and the church will be a perpetual marriage for all eternity. And as Paul continues this larger fulfillment, look at the imagery he uses here. We're informed that we as believers, we as believers are so connected, he says we're members of his body, of his flesh and bones, we're so connected in our relationship to Christ that we are not simply standing by Jesus or him standing by us, which that is true as well. Remember, uh, many things in the Bible are not either or, but both and. The principle of duality. Yes, Jesus is standing beside us, but he's also in us, right? He's not just beside us. He's in us. We're not just standing next to Christ, but we've been spiritually fused together with the Lord. I don't know how all that works, do you? But I know it's true. I don't know how exactly we're all fused together with Christ, but I know that it's true. Jesus said we would abide in him and that he would also abide in us, that we're, we're called to abide in him and he would abide in us, and we would be as one, just like if you take two colors of Play-Doh. You ever, well, you ever taken two colors of Play-Doh and put them together and then tried to re-separate them? You get a new color eventually. You get this <laughs> swirl in the middle, right? Uh, and uh, if you have kids and they have all the colors out, you get like little tiny dots of 50 different colors all mixed in there. And if you're a perfectionist, it drives you nuts because you're trying to keep the yellow here, the green one here, the pink one there. And then over time, and then they disintegrate because a little piece falls off the table. But when it comes to the fact that we're fused together, once that fusion takes place, and Christ and us and us and him, it's inseparable. And that's the God's design. The wording uh, in verse 30, look at the wording in verse 30. Members of his body, flesh, and in verse 31. Uh, let me look at verse 30 first. Where he says that of his body, his flesh, and bones. I wonder if Paul had in mind, because this takes us back to Genesis 2.23. When Adam looked at Eve, God had just uh, created Eve, and he sees her, whoa, man, you know, woman, you know, looks at her and amazing and Adam said this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man now very similar imagery right that, that Adam said she's bone of my bone flesh of my flesh well Paul says here for we are members of his body and his flesh and 
bones, very similar imagery. Eve had come out of Adam, and yet Adam realized that even though she had come out of him, they were one because she was part of him. And moms had that connection to a baby. Say, hey, you know, I, that's, that I birthed you speech gets pulled out every now and then, right? You know, uh, we might be separated by air, but uh, here's the deal. You know, here's what I endured for you and carried you and all of these things. But the picture of marriage has always been one of two parts, two becoming one. And this flows into verse 31, where Paul quotes here in verse 31, many of your Bibles are probably in italics, maybe not all, but many of your Bibles are probably in italics. For this reason, a man should leave his father and mother to join to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And here Paul is quoting Genesis 2, 24. Now, I said that the previous verse, verse 30, looks a lot like Genesis 2, 23. You think Paul ever read the Old Testament? Well, of course he did. He quotes from it all the time. Uh, he would have even known the order of Genesis 2.23 and 2.24, and so I think the Holy Spirit reminding him that the original image is portrayed in the image of Christ in the church. We see that wording order matches here. Marriage, by design, is two becoming one, but also it's stronger and more fulfilling when two become one. Not only is it God's design that two become one, but a marriage is a lot stronger when two become one. Remember a few years ago, there was the marriage movie titled Fireproof. Anyone see that movie? Remember that movie, Fireproof? And it was, uh, it was at the theaters, and then you can rent it now. And now as we've touched over the past few weeks, um, because there's no perfect people, there's no perfect marriages. But if we remain husband and wife, as the two surrendered disciples of Jesus that we're called to be, abiding in Christ, our marriage can be fireproof from the fiery darts that'll come. Can you believe that? You believe that? That's true? That we can be fireproof from those things. The Pledge of Allegiance starts like this. Or it doesn't start like this, but in the, in the Pledge of Allegiance it says, one nation under God. One nation, what? He under God. Which, by the way, these days, we neither act like one nation, nor do we act like under God, right? You'll never be one nation unless you're under God. And if you're under God, you actually will be one nation. So it's axiomatic that if we really want to be one, we have to be under God. But the same is true in a marriage. The marriage, one marriage under God. You really can be one in marriage if you both are under God. It's going to be hard if one person's under God and the other person's not under God. It's going to make it difficult to be one. Under God, we'll see him bless our commitment in marriage, and then he'll bless our satisfaction in marriage. Because God, God does want to satisfy. You look at the 23rd song. He leads us beside still water. He restores our soul. He causes us to lay down and rest. The Lord does want to satisfy us. He doesn't want to cater to us. We're, to, we're sort of to catering to the Lord and serving the Lord, but at the same time, he does want to nourish and satisfy us. Think about it. In, in marriage, if God has preserved, and this is like if you say, I'm going to follow the way God says to do this. And if you think about it, if God has preserved and blessed the marriage of thousands of saints before us, he can fireproof, he can bless, and he can solidify any marriage here. Well, I, you don't know the issues we've had. And you don't know what a jerk I have on the other end of this thing, right? doesn't matter. God's changed lots of people. 
He's fused a lot of people together. He's fireproofed a lot of marriages. Thousands in the past. Our marriages can be like the burning bush that the only fire that really is sustained is a purifying fire. It doesn't harm. The fire of God doesn't harm us, by the way. It always purifies out the bad stuff. Satan's fire, like, destroys and, you know, you're left with ashes. The fire of God purifies us, that the Spirit of God is the fire that we're talking about. And the cloud of witnesses that have gone before us, they would tell us we can absolutely see health and victory in marriage. Remember this, millions of people, millions of people are officially and legally married in our country. Millions of people are married, officially, legally, just the peace, marriage, great ceremony, $10,000 ceremony, $10 ceremony. Many people are married. But even though many people are married, quite a few will also end in divorce. And millions actually won't end up in divorce. They'll stay married. But even though they're married, even though millions might stay married, many of those will never actually have a biblical marriage. Though they may be married legally, they'll not have what God designed. They'll never experience what God intended, and they'll try and find outside of the marriage what God has specifically placed in the domain of marriage. They'll never find the intimacy. They'll never find the trust. They'll never find the friendship. They'll never find the unity. They'll never find the joy, but they will be officially married. They might even kind of stay together through all kinds of years and reasons. Many people will openly say, we're more like good roommates. People will actually, I've had people admit that to me. Say, well, we don't have much, well, we're married, but we're just like roommates. I've literally had people tell me this over the years. Some might say, we're more like business partners. There's people that actually get married for business reasons. They arrange you know, royal marriages in, in times past for those very reasons. Some people would say, you know, we're just, uh, uh, we're together, but we're not really connected in any kind of love or no, no emotional connection, much less a spiritual connection. And some aren't even connected physically at all, which is, which is a, a very sad state as well. It's not representative of marriage or Christ in the church. Marriage, the kind that God designed ordained, has a oneness that can't be fabricated. It has a oneness that can't be fabricated. The oneness that God creates is a work of the Spirit. It has a supernatural component to it. Just like our salvation has a supernatural component. Yes, you can speak words, but words of repentance have a supernatural outcome. Amen? That's different than if you just read poetry. Oneness comes, though, from commitment. First, it comes from commitment to Jesus and then one another. And it's a constant focus. It's a constant focus. Um, we'll look at that focus in just a minute. But let's take a look at the... Um, why did I not show you this? Anyway, all that time was called our fulfillment. But uh, in arrears, that's what it was called. Uh, moving on, uh, our next thing we want to take a look at, our um, future here. Our future. Let's shift gears for just a bit. I have to shift gears because Paul shifts gears here just a bit. Look at verse 32. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Looking at the future state of Christ and the church, um, I want to take a couple of minutes to look at the future state of Christ and the church, and then we'll, uh, we'll finish on some practical application on the outworking of marriage. Now, we know this picture of us as the bride 
presented by Paul and even presented by Jesus himself. Jesus makes this clear as well. He has the, the parable of the virgins and the bridegroom coming. It's not only a picture, it's not only a picture, but it's an eternal reality right now. Okay? The picture of Christ in the church is not just a picture, it is a reality. Just like the presence of Jesus is more real here, even though you and I cannot see him physically, than you and I are real here. Isn't that amazing? Because we will fade away body-wise, but he never fades away. And then when we get to eternity, we actually see reality was the things we couldn't see, and yet we were dominated by the things we could see. So it's not just a picture, it's an eternal reality. It's already a reality in the Spirit. We're already married to Christ in the Spirit. But in the future, we'll actually see it in its fulfillment. And it's all, of course, it's already been seen by God who sits outside of time, right? God's already seen the beginning, the end. But we're married to Christ right now. We're 100% married through salvation and the work on the cross. Christ uh, paid the purchase of his bride with his blood. There was an ancient Jewish and Near East custom when a man wanted to take for himself a wife, uh, he had to pay the bride price to purchase that bride, to give the father of the bride a big chunk, say, hey, you know, you're losing someone who is uh, meaningful to the house, helpful to the family, and there had to be a price. Jesus purchased his bride with his blood. And then uh, the gift that he presented to his bride was salvation, purchased by his own blood, and then the Holy Spirit was the proof of the purchase. The Spirit in you is the proof that Christ has purchased you as part of his bride. That's the evidence of it all. But still, as Paul says here, nevertheless, this is a great mystery. Don't ever think that you can explain everything in the Bible to someone who's a skeptic. You can't. You have to let the Holy Spirit convince them that they'll never understand every single thing, but they'll understand more than enough to say yes to Jesus. Isn't that great to know? I knew enough to say yes, but I don't know enough to explain every little thing. What about this question? What about this? I only have 3,000 questions for you, Pastor. All right, if I can answer 300, I'm probably doing pretty good. But it's still a great deal of our relationship with Jesus remains a mystery on this side of eternity. A great deal of it will remain a mystery. In 1 John 3, 2, the Apostle John, a contemporary of Paul, he said, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Present tense, as he is, as Jesus is right now. Jesus said, no man knows the time of his return, but the Father only. We even wonder how that works. Say, hold, hold on a second. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're one, right? Mm -hmm. They all are infinite, powerful, yep, true. Jesus, in some way in the Godhood, he defers the knowledge of his return to the Father only, although Jesus is the, is the Father and equal to the Father. And that's the kind of stuff that drives people batty. They're like, well, I need to be able to understand that. Well, if you could understand it, you would be God. But only the Father knows when the Son will return. But we not only don't know, we not only don't know as believers, 
I know we talk about Jesus could return at any time, but we really never, we usually think he could, but he won't. That's, I mean, that's the reality of what we really think. He could, but he probably, definitely, most definitely will not anytime next week or today or tomorrow or whatever else. But even though we don't know when Christ will return, we also don't know what Jesus looks like. As John just said, we'll see him as he is. We'll see the bridegroom. We don't know what Jesus looks like. I know you see all these pictures and he looks like he's got long hair like some 60s rock star or something, but that we don't know what Jesus looked like. We don't know what color he was or any of that stuff. I don't really enjoy all these paintings of Jesus. I don't know about you, but all these people's conceptions. If the Bible doesn't tell you what it looks like, let's just, let's just wait and find out, right? <laughs> Little caricatures and stuff. We're going to be surprised, I'm sure of it. But even though he's our Lord and Savior and we've never seen him, and even though we're betrothed him as a bride, much of it remains a mystery. We don't know what he's going to look like. We don't know how even we're going to feel at that moment. Yet we will see him as he is. We'll see him in his glory. It said John fell at his feet like a dead man. How about that? We'll see him in his glory. We'll see him in his holiness. We'll see him welcoming his bride to heaven. And as of now, we are waiting for the wedding day. We're waiting for the day, even though we're waiting for the wedding day, even though we're already committed in marriage. And so this might also kind of confound the Western thought, uh, which is also great when people tell you, I don't like Christianity because it's a Western religion. I'm like, well, you've not studied it because it's absolutely not. The picture of marriage is not a Western thought the way we would think of it at all. We're married now and yet we're waiting for the wedding day. So how does that all work? Well, this is best reflected in the understanding of the Jewish context of marriage in the Near East in Bible times. This Jewish um, understanding, in the most simplified terms, a Jewish marriage, really understand this, and it'll help you kind of understand what's happening with Christ and the church, where we're at today, where we're going, where the future is, um, a Jewish marriage consisted of two events, but three phases, if you will. Two events and three phases. Though you were legally married after the first event and through all subsequent phases. And we saw this in the union of Joseph and Mary. Were they married when the Holy Spirit came upon Mary? Yes. Had they been physically intimate? No, they had not been. But they were already married under betrothal when the angel visited. Um, let's take a look at what this looks like. Hopefully this helps everybody. Put on my new awesome glasses for a second here. There we go. So in this, uh, first, uh, in this first event, you have the betrothal phase. Um, this would be the enactment of marriage. And then you have uh, event two, which would be the actual wedding itself. So there would be this betrothal, and a wedding date is arranged by the father, right? Comes together, so the, usually both fathers arrange this wedding date, and th that will take place. And when there's the wedding date, that's when all the guests are invited. That's a big celebration, right? But then there's the final phase after the actual wedding. So you're fully married under betrothal, but then you have uh, this final phase 
of the consummation of the marriage, and then what most of you are married now, you actually live in the same house now. Because in the betrothal phase, they don't live in the same place. They're officially married, but they don't live together yet. They actually are both working on the preparation of coming together, and yet they're already married. Much different than today's cultural norms of try everything out first, and then see if you like it. And then if you still don't really feel convinced, put in a few prenuptials, right? No faults, things of that nature. So you have these three, uh, three um, phases, but two events, the betrothal. The betrothal was a little ceremony. If families would come together, both parties would commit, the wife, uh, the husband committing to the marriage, and it was signified uh, with, in this betrothal phase, they would each drink from a little cup of wine. Everybody would drink that little cup of wine, and Jesus comes, and he institutes at the Passover, Everyone drank from the cup. And right now, we're in the betrothal phase, and every time we take the Lord's Supper, it's a picture of the fact that that little drink that we take is part of the betrothal that we are committed, 100% married. We are not going to go into the adultery of the world. We're not going to go back and serve other gods. We're not going to go serve idolatry. We're not going to serve ourselves or put ourselves back on the throne. We take that cup and we take of the Lord's Supper and it's a signification of our betrothal to Christ. Isn't that great to know? We are in union, fully married, and the Lord's Supper or the Passover is a betrayal of that. But the little betrothal ceremony that the, the, the bride's family and the husband's or the groom's family, they come together, they drink of that cup, then they go their separate ways. She'd go prepare to be a wife. He would go get the house ready. Does that sound familiar? I will go and prepare a place for you. That where I am, you will be also. So Jesus goes and prepares the place. The husband has to go and prepare the place. They, um, what they would typically do is that uh, the, the groom would build a little extra room on his father's house. An extra room would be the honeymoon suite as well as this is where we're going to live. Uh, I know today everybody likes to fan out. And hey, we'll see the parents a couple times a year and all that stuff. But it wasn't that way there. And Jesus and his father are really close too, right? He says, in my father's house are many mansions, and I'm going to bring you there. And also, you would sometimes have, uh, maybe the, uh, the groom would build a house on the father's land or this separate room, depending on the, the, the amount of kind of wealth uh, each individual family had. And so we see that um, that third part, so... Uh, or the second part, let me go back to the second part for a second. The second part is after the betrothal phase that ends, then there really is a wedding ceremony, and it's a really big deal in Jewish context, right? It's not just a, a 90-minute ceremony. This goes on for a few days, a lot of celebration. And then finally, when there's the consummation of the marriage, the bride and groom, they leave, it's the honeymoon experience, and then forever, well, at least the remainder of their lifetime, they would live together unless one died. And they would stay together. But when we get to heaven with Jesus, we'll never die. So we'll be married forever. And we'll forever be in the house that Jesus has built for us. And so you see that the Jewish context of marriage is played out in the role of Christ in the church. That we will fulfill this same pattern as the church. And Jesus said in John 17, 11, Holy Father, Keep through your name those who you have given me, that they may be one, even as we're one. 
Jesus said, Father, you and I are one. I want the church to be one with us. And Jesus prayed that prayer on our behalf. We're in an arranged marriage right now that was arranged by the Holy Spirit. Because a lot of times the Father would have someone build the arrangement, and so the Holy Spirit has done that. Remember, Abraham sent uh, his servant to arrange the marriage between Isaac and Rebekah. And God has, by his Spirit, sent and arranged the marriage, and that it was purchased by the blood of Jesus, and then Jesus will bring us to the wedding celebration, and then to the eternal home that he has built, and that day is getting nearer and nearer and nearer and more near than since we started this service. We're getting closer to the wedding celebration, and finally, the consummation and eternity of the marriage. Brother and sister, as the wedding day approaches, no engaged couple... Two people that are engaged. Uh, I have been a part, I've, I've done, I don't know, 10, 12 marriages where I've officiated the marriage. And I have never yet seen the week of the wedding, I have never seen couples just sitting around doing nothing. It is a madhouse that last week. I don't care how good of a planner you are, something is always to be done that final week, isn't it? Did anyone call the caterer? Well, we did, but did anyone do this? Did anyone do this? Has anyone seen my mother-in-law? All this kind of stuff, right? What about this? What about this? What about this? Do we have something barred? Do we have something blue? All these things, and you thought everything was done, and there's a lot to be done the final week, and there's a lot to be done in the final weeks of eternity before Jesus comes, or, or earth before Jesus comes back to take us to eternity, isn't there? His bride and groom are to be getting it ready, not... Hey, I don't know what could happen next week. I don't got a thing to do. And so we've been, uh, they're not completely oblivious to the coming of the day. There's a focus on the things that need to be done, right? A laser focus on the things that need to be done. Brother and sister, are we laser focused on the things that Jesus would have us doing to get ready for the wedding? We should live and prepare like the eternal celebration honeymoon is next week. Like it's next week. Jesus said, if they had known when the bridegroom was coming, they would have been ready. That's the thing. Jesus doesn't tell us when it's coming, so he says, I want you always ready. We say, well, I'd be ready if you told me, if you told me for sure it's January 15, 2018, that I'm going to be a really good Christian from now till then. I'm going to be on my absolute best. And Jesus said, what if I don't tell you, but I tell you to be ready as if? Well, someday we'll have to give an account to why we didn't just say, yes, sir, I'll do that. I'll be ready. Which brings us to our last point this morning, being focused. And we want to shift gears one last time back to the practical application of marriage. Again, Paul, if you've been following this series, Paul kind of goes marriage, Christ, and church, marriage, Christ, and church, marriage, Christ. He keeps weaving the two. And the reason is we need something bigger than ourselves to always be in front of us. Amen? Amen? If it was always about us, everything would disintegrate. God is so much bigger than us, and we always need Christ and his supremacy above us. Now, I love the us stuff. When, when, when things are going great, we all love the us stuff. But Jesus actually is always that centerpiece that when things are rocky or things aren't perfect, we can always look back to that, and it recenters our thinking, our life, the decisions we make, and even how we focus in the area of marriage. Now, before we finish with this final exhortation uh, in the husband-wife relationship, the focus of all believers, 
Single or married, again, I try and teach this to single, anyone in this room, you don't have to be married to get something out of this text, because Paul makes this clear on the picture. But um, the focus of all believers is, and this is for all of us, that our focus be on Christ above everything else. Everything else. I need to love Jesus more than my wife, Sarah. She needs to love Jesus more than she loves me. That takes, if that happens, our love for each other is going to really flourish. But everyone in this room is the first and foremost focus. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added. Everything else will fall into place. That keeps everything else in focus and in perspective. But to a certain extent, marriage creates a dual or primary then secondary, primary being Christ, secondary being my spouse, focus, you know? Primary, secondary focus. But they're all kind of always in vision. And Paul articulates this in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting verse 32. He said, he who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of this world, how he may plead his wife, please wife. Not worldly like worldly, world like worldly, but world like the physical realm. Okay? There is a difference between a wife and a virgin, Paul says. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord that she may be holy, both in body and spirit, but she who is married cares about the things of this world or the physical realm, how she may please her husband. So Paul says, hey, uh, to the single person, they can be 100% focused, 100% focused on their love and relationship and serving God. But to the married person, they now have a spouse that also needs significant attention. Some of you are saying, yeah, my spouse needs a lot of attention. That, we'll get to that in just a second. Now, obviously, obviously, if God ordained marriage, if he blessed it, if God says marriage is a good thing, and he says that, he finds a wife, finds a good thing. If it's his plan for parenting, do you know God wants children to come through marriage? Now, you shouldn't feel condemned if you came through a different set of circumstances because many people that have come to Christ don't even know their father, never knew their mom. Bad relationships. We've had them in our family. We've had all kinds of broken relationships in my family. And, and yet God has done amazing work in all of them. So that's not what the Lord, the Lord is saying. Here's, here's what I want everyone to come back to, but if you're not there now, I'll love you right where you're at. Just turn to me. We know, his, we know his role for marriage. We know he wants parenting to have a, a dad and a mom, and we know the, the value in that. So Paul isn't undermining marriage here, not at all. Rather, he's underscoring that marriage will require an equal consideration of our spouse, and every step we take in our faith in Christ we will have to not just take it for ourselves, but we also want our spouse to grow in the Lord equally at the same time, that we're, we're considering where they're at too, that they also would come along and grow step by step. And so we have a focus on, I don't just personally want to grow in my walk, Lord, I want my wife to grow just like me, and she wants the same for me. See, marriage brings responsibility. We all know that, right? Brings responsibility, you know? When you uh, were single and there was nothing in the fridge but a thing of mustard, that was okay with you, right? You get a second person in the house, they might not be okay with that. You know, I come home and 
What am I supposed to eat, mustard? You know, that's all that's in there? Oh, there are cornflakes or something like that. You know, responsibility. We, we think outside just ourselves. There's a focus and a commitment that changes how we live, how we serve, where we serve, when we serve, because we have another person to consider. Having children has the same impact on our life, doesn't it? As far as what we're going to do with our time. Having children has this kind of impact. You may be a mom... Uh, maybe, some, maybe a mom is at home right now watching on our live stream on our YouTube channel. Maybe someone's watching right now that wanted to be here at church today, wishes they were at church today, but their child has a 101 fever and laying on the couch saying, get me another cranberry juice or whatever else that they want, right? Tending to a sick child. You may want to be here, but that doesn't mean you can be because you have responsibilities. You have another focus. You have another person in your life that needs that level of attention. If you didn't, uh, now, if you didn't have a child, you wouldn't have to think about that. Somebody else might have to think about it, but you wouldn't have to think about it, because that's not your responsibility. But in marriage, we're called to love and serve one another as we serve Christ. But serving one another will take some time, won't it? It's going to take effort. It's going to take compromise. It's going to take considerations that require a steady and maturing in our life, but a focus on seeing where are we really at and how can we grow in these areas. Let's look at this last verse. This last verse, um, it says, Nevertheless, let each one of you, in particular, so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. What Paul's saying here is, Nevertheless, in spite of the bigger picture, in spite of the bigger picture that Christ and the church is the ultimate fulfillment of it all, in spite of that bigger picture, Paul says, you're still going to have to love and respect one another in the here and now, in the dust and ashes of which you are. Nevertheless, you're going to have to focus on coming together and being one and working out, just like you work out your salvation, you've got to work out your marriage. Same thing. He says, nevertheless, you're going to have to work at this. You're going to have to choose to love and care for one another in spite of the bigger picture, in spite of the future of the church, in spite of the mystery of things we can't see and understand. We're going to have to focus and pay attention to building and growing our marriages. Husbands, so love your wife, he says. So, so. Emphasis on, not just, so love them. Wives, respect your husbands. Some of you may in the past have been part of that uh, marriage conference, Love and Respect. Uh, you, some of you may have gone to that or been a part of that or maybe you've uh, watched the video series on it or something like that. But uh, the premise of Dr. Egrich's uh, counsel and encouragement to couple is found right here in Ephesians 5.33 where it says, Husbands, love, wives, respect. Dr. Egrich's uh, and his, um, his organization, they asked 7,000 people this question. And it was this, is that when you are in a conflict with your spouse or, or significant other, do you feel unloved or disrespected? 83% of men said disrespected, and 72% of women said unloved. The way they viewed the same argument, the men said this is a lack of respect, the women said this is a lack of love from the other side. They would look at it and say, I wish he'd love me more. He wouldn't act this way. He'd say, I wish she respected my genius idea here. 
By the way, respect in this context is to give honor or deference. Deference. When we say deference, in this case, it's deference to the husband's God-given authority. Not that he's smarter, more equipped, or even really good at the job yet. God-given responsibility. Isn't it great that God gives us all jobs before we're ready? How many of you felt like you were ready for the job of parenthood? You say, well, yeah, I was, I was acing it before it even happened. And you've got the job and realize, why, God, would you give me this job? I'm not even good at it. <laughs> Understand that for your husband and wife. They're, God's saying the same thing. Just like you realize when you finally have had your kid, you're really bad at this. I made you a husband and wife, and you can say, I'm really not good at this. And God says, that's why you're all going to go through the school of discipleship and get better at it. Respect, this deference, is important. To love is to show consideration, care, compassion, genuine interest. That's what love looks like. Sacrifice, Jesus laying down his life for the church. Gary Smalley in his book, For Better or Best, says that men need to be admired by their wives and that wives, their, devi- their desire, and get this word, uh, just two words, undivided attention. Wives are desiring undivided attention. Hold on. I can't have remote. This, this, this. That's undivided. You're the only person in the room. That must be undivided, right? Of course not. Um, but that's what he says that women are desiring. This undivided attention and uh, men, uh, of course, not every moment, but there has to be times of undivided attention. Now, um, long before conferences and long before books and long before authors, the Bible has already laid out the picture for us, though, has it? It's already laid out Christ and the church. It's already shown us that the church should, the church should absolutely admire Jesus, wouldn't you say? The church should absolutely admire, reverence, and respect Jesus. And we know that the church has absolutely been given the undivided attention of Christ towards us, hasn't he? So we have the picture that what we should be admiring the Lord, and we know the Lord is giving us that individual attention. But many couples still don't know how to do this. They haven't been discipled or mentored in marriage. Many people haven't been. Just like many people don't know how to parent because they've not had anyone take them through the Scriptures, show them how to do it. This is what God wants to do. They've perhaps grown up, uh, people have grown up around really poor relationships and say, well, if you'd have seen our family life, that's all I know. And, and I get that, because I can look back and see things, and you can look back and see things and say, well, that, that doesn't square with anything I'm reading here. People have had poor examples in life. Some people have had no examples at all. Kids that have grown up with no parents. What, what, what reference point do they have? So there, there's that uh, that um, is just very common in the, the experience of many people. But um, with the fact that people need... Uh, mentoring. They need discipleship. It's why I so encourage uh, men and women to get into women's Bible studies and men's Bible studies that we have here. You know, we meet uh, this past Thursday night, we had almost 30 men here. And we don't just talk about the scriptures, we always talk it through life. And what does it mean in a marriage? And what does it mean as a father? And ladies, I know you do the same thing, because my wife will share, man, we had an awesome discussion, and here's how we talk it through about how, how do we be a wife in this situation? How do we love when we don't really feel like loving? How do we admire and respect when there's, there's 
serious conflict here, and there's some walls that need to come down. All of these things. That's why I encourage, we'll never call, cover all this in a three-week marriage Bible study. This has not been a three-week workshop. It's a, it's a Bible study of Ephesians, where we're touching on all these principles of marriage. But the discipleship, the mentorship comes in men going to, with men and women going with men, women, iron sharpening iron. I encourage you. Say, I, I don't normally do that right now. I encourage you to do it. Say, if you really want to grow in it, you need to start getting to men's and women's studies because that's where the real growth and mentorship takes place. I think the ladies coming up this Tuesday? The third Tuesday? It's the third Tuesday. Whatever the third Tuesday is. I don't know what Tuesday we're at. But anyway. I want to close, though, with um, three things that we'll just close out here with on this focus of marriage. And uh, three things you can write down that I think will have uh, real impact if you really will refer back to them and, uh, and commit to them in your life. The first one is uh, what I've titled purpose. Commit to making your walk with Jesus number one and your marriage number two. Your walk with Jesus number one and your marriage number two. And when I say that, pray it. Say, Lord, I'm praying to commit. You're first and foremost in my life, and the marriage that you've given me is right behind that because God gave marriage. And part of that commitment to him is to have that right commitment in the marriage. Commit to being in discipleship with other men and women. Say, if you mean business, and say, I really want to commit to that, I need to start being discipled. Now, those of us who have walked and learned to cite. By the way, when teachers teach students, teachers learn. So you say, well, what are you doing and when you're at that study? Every time I'm teaching someone, I'm always learning because I'm learning from the conversation, the, the dialogue that's taking place. Now, that happens in a Bible study because all people are involved, more so than like this setting. This is called teaching and exhortation of the Word, but then when you get into a smaller Group studies, that's where you actually have interactive discussion and we grow together and work through things. Say, well, well, this problem arose. How do I handle it? Here's what the Bible says. Here's how, here's how I experienced that. So you've got to commit and pray over these things, but also commit to being in discipleship with other men and women to help you to grow in your marriage. And, and certainly all of our men's and women's studies aren't just about marriage. Those of you that are single, we, we cover the gamut. And that's why God has a family, because in a family, not everyone in the family is a husband and wife. You have kids, you have in-between kids, you have, you know, all, everyone in the same room has the same basic needs, and the scriptures are able to kind of cover all that. The second thing is to plan. What I mean by that? Well, we need to pray and say, Lord, help us to better plan ways to free up and make time in our life for the right priorities. We may need to simplify our lives somewhere. We, must, we might have some real wasted time and wasted motion in our life. It's really not fruitful and it's not helping us grow in our marriage, not helping us grow as a family. You actually have to plan a date. Dates don't plan themselves. You want to have a date night? You've got to plan it. You, I always recommend you start small. Say, I'll ask them, so when's the last time your husband and I had a date? Well, it was about 18 months ago. All right, all right, here's the deal. Don't plan once a week. Never happen. Don't even plan once a month to start with. Say, I'm going to do four in 2018, and that's four times more than you did in the last 18 months. Start small and let it grow from there. Small things have big results. Small things have big results. Uh, everything. Start small. Uh, say, we don't pray together. Plan to pray together just at the end of the night or five minutes in the morning or two minutes in the morning. That, over the week, 
you do two minutes times four, seven days, you have 14 minutes you prayed together. That you do that all year long. The minutes add up, and it's infinitely more than you currently would have. So these small things, but you've got to plan them. Plan to serve together. We've got, we got some things coming up we're going to announce around the Christmas season. You could go and do together. You could go and do it in a couple of minutes. You could take longer if you want, but it's something you all could do together. And when husbands and wives serve together, it brings them together. So romantic stuff, the date stuff, all those things have to be planned, but also serving together. And if we don't sit down and schedule things that are important, they'll never happen. They'll never happen. We'll just kind of talk about them. We have to sit down and plan them out. Lastly, it's to practice. What does that mean? Well, we have to pray and start to put into practice the things that the Lord has shown us. We have to practice listening. We have to practice turning off the distractions. We have to practice it. Say, look, let's remind each other. And not get mad when we remind each other. Say, oh, yeah, we agreed to practice these things, to practice them out, to say, hey, what's the Lord doing in your life? And you answer back with a cogent response and hey what's the lord doing in your life removing these distractions practicing saying i love you a lot of times people don't say it we got to do these things i want to close with um a quote from william penn that's what he said he said in marriage remember they, they spoke a little different back then but in marriage do thou be wise prefer the person before money virtue before beauty the mind before the body. Then thou hast a wife, a friend, a companion, a second self. And I know he spoke it to the men, but it, 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 the reverse is still true. Every bit of it, Jesus says, I want you and your spouse to become a second self. We have a choice in our walk with Jesus, don't we? We have a choice in our marriage. We have a choice not only to be a Christian, and not only to be married, but to be a disciple and a growing and a flourishing marriage that's becoming one. The Lord has given us the guidance. Now all we have to do is follow. Amen?